0: Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, bonus episode 2, Abolition, American Freedom and the Underground Railroad. Hello, all. I wasn't entirely happy with the previous episode. I know that I spent too much time setting up the political problems of 1850 and that I failed to really get into the topic. This episode is my apology, a way of expanding and updating that. If people are really interested then in the future we could even dive into some of the political divides of the abolitionist cause and the personalities behind them, especially as a few of those divides and personalities will in part create political factions that President Lincoln will have to deal with. But for now, abolition. To begin with, let's briefly explore the origins of American abolitionism. Slavery was present in some form in all of the original 13 colonies, and it wasn't necessarily stronger in the South as compared to the Mid-Atlantic or even New England. South Carolina, Virginia, and New York were all strongholds of slavery, but you'd find men and women for sale from Boston to Savannah, and New England shipping accounted for much of the colonial slave trade. That said, you would also find abolition-minded men and women everywhere, from Savannah to Boston. Following the establishment of the new United States of America, these people found their voice. The first success was to succeed in banning the international slave trade. But this was not the only early success at all. One by one, most of the states began to limit or even ban slavery. Propelling these changes were newly founded abolitionist societies. Even founding fathers, such as Benjamin Franklin, joined some of these groups. And most American leaders, including our second president, John Adams especially, favored gradual emancipation, although granted, they favored that over swifter and more radical measures. However, this does not mean that more firm voices were inherently unwelcome on the subject. Progress on the subject of slavery continued year by year in this era. Pennsylvania began graduated emancipation in 1780, and Massachusetts followed suit and just banned it outright in 1783. In 1787, Congress banned slavery in what was then called the Northwest Territories, more or less the modern Midwestern states, and thereby secured a considerable victory against the spread of slavery. Within a decade, New England had become more or less free of the stain entirely, and it looked increasingly weak in the Mid-Atlantic region as well. Now, the Compromise of 1820 allowed slavery in the southern portions of the Louisiana Purchase, but it contained a strong anti-slavery sting in its tail. The region could, and eventually did, produce three slave states. But the land gained eventually included something like ten other states, all of which would become free territory. Only the acquisition of Florida and Texas gave slaveholders much additional political power. And as we've seen, the expansion of the United States to the Pacific further weakened the hold of slavery. In reality, abolitionism had become a powerful social force, even when it was not necessarily a powerful political one. Abolitionists exerted a strong pull on the direction of the United States, even though they did not completely control it. However, the progress made slowed over time and it became more a matter of preventing the growth of slavery than outright killing it. This shift in momentum occurred for many reasons, but to boil it down to just three, we have the massive and economy-defining shift to cotton cultivation, which made slavery immensely profitable for planters, the political domination of Southern society by the planter class, and the exodus of many citizens to new frontiers, where they were not competing with literal slave labor. However, today we're not so much looking at the causes as the results. Even as the liberation of slaves achieved its final success north of the Ohio and north of Maryland, it was fast becoming a four-letter word in a lot of the lands south of that line. The very success of abolitionism, and its emergence as a proselytizing international movement that united Protestant preachers and Catholic popes, Spanish monarchs, and Venezuelan dictators and English ministers alike. Well, it gave Southern planters, Southern slave owners, reason to fear. These men and women, slave masters, knew very well that their way of life was being judged and found wanting in nearly all the civilized world. But how do I put this? They still had the money. English weavers might condemn slavery, but they still bought the cotton. Planters couldn't rule in Massachusetts, but they could in South Carolina, And so they did. Abolitionism became a topic one could not broach very loudly, not unless you were quick to condemn it. Those who transgressed the unwritten social rules, even in the most delicate of ways, could find themselves in a great deal of trouble in very short order. This punishment might mean social ostracism. It could also mean violent retribution. This applied to both white men and free African Americans, who increasingly found themselves pushed out of social and economic life. Now, most of the sunny South was not especially hospitable to free African Americans, although sizable communities existed in and around New Orleans and also Maryland and Northern Virginia. Attitudes did differ from area to area, and almost all of the South had some free black families. These did not, in the main, openly challenge the race's social order, but note the significance of the word openly. They could, and did, communicate with slaves, and proclaim to them that freedom was no burden. They also frequently gave aid to fugitives when and where possible, as well as preserving and growing an African-American counterculture to the racism of American society. Their very existence was a direct rebuke to slaveholders, who most definitely noticed that fact and greatly resented it. On the flip side, free white men in the South either left entirely or subordinated themselves to an increasingly dependent public role. You were either in the upper echelons of education and wealth, or you were increasingly on the margins, with poor land and poorer prospects. The free, white Southerner, who did not own much property, often had very few avenues left to self-improvement and the Mississippi region, filling up with slaves and plantations, cut off expansion in that direction. This did not mean that there were no avenues to success, but merely that they were more and more difficult to come by. This was still an agricultural age, but a great deal of free white farmers occupied poorer land. Others lived as employees of plantations or were indirectly employed in the business of selling and transporting cotton or supplying the plantations. Put together, along with the deliberate spread of racist prejudice, meant that most free white men and women emphatically did not rebel against the planters or embrace abolitionism. However, a certain amount of irony lay behind this, because many of those who did embrace it left for the Midwest or California, or even settled in growing commercial hubs like New York. Only people who lived in the most isolated regions, such as Appalachia, could dare to consider rejecting slavery outright. This does not mean that people didn't have some abolitionist urges elsewhere, only that they largely kept them very close to the chest. Even in Charleston, the ideological heart of slavery and secession gave the world the famous Grimke sisters. The pair, born in the late 18th century, grew up in slaveholding Charleston and on their father's very large wealthy plantation. However, the two sisters encountered Quakerism in Pennsylvania and rapidly adopted many of their views, including on slavery. They would go on to spend a considerable portion of their lives traveling, promoting abolitionism among other social causes, and pushed ideas on racial equality commonplace today, but exceptionally radical in the 19th century. The Quakers are a religious sect of dissenters from the Church of England. Now, I am no religious scholar and couldn't give a coherent account of their theology in full, But the really short version is that they emphasized strict personal moral improvement. Their significance in American history is that they colonized Pennsylvania, and they greatly affected its culture. Nonviolent almost to a fault, they refused to join military bodies at all, and among other things, refused to own slaves or countenance slavery itself. Even before the founding of the American nation, the Quakers formed a slightly different culture and constantly agitated against slavery or perhaps agitated is not the right word, for they were not so much protesting as quietly asking, as one friend to another, that slavery be ended. Now, planters could arm themselves to the teeth and fight back against uprisings, and they could demand legal protection and aid from the government until the end of the world. But hundreds and thousands discovered that they had no real defense against a message of brotherhood. For instance, nearby Maryland bordering Pennsylvania, was in the process of becoming a free state in practice, although perhaps too slowly. Despite the considerable growth of the population, specifically including African Americans, the number of slaves declined there year over year. I should also clearly point out that some slaves were being sold off to the Deep South as well, but Maryland's freedmen population was growing rapidly, and other slave states, even in the border areas, were not seeing declining slave populations or rather other slave states except neighboring Delaware, which at this point had become a slave state almost in name only, with only a tiny number left to speak of. All the states around Pennsylvania found themselves much affected by Quakerism, even as the number of practicing Quakers declined over the 19th century. And abolitionists who were not Quakers, and indeed most were not, often adopted similar tactics and a similar message. Further, abolitionists formed not one large anti slavery body, but hundreds of smaller local bodies. They resembled not so much a political party or a network of radical cells, but rather churches, and very often an abolitionist circle and a church were quite identical. Now, this had, and still has, disadvantages for united political action on a national scale. However, we should also see it as a significant source of strength. Across much of the nation, if one had abolitionist sympathies, odds were good a circle of like-minded individuals regularly met nearby. It also meant constant local pressure against slavery, even if there was no political advantage to doing so. Now, throughout the life of the nation, but especially in the expanded railroad and telegraph-driven communication network of the 1840s and 1850s, abolitionists began to talk. And they talked a great deal. Now, previously, they had mostly pushed action on a state level, or exerted pressure on neighboring states, because that is literally what the technology of the day permitted. But almost as soon as a national media existed, the abolitionists were right there spreading the gospel of liberty within it. Journalists, poets, novelists, and many other writers across the North frequently displayed anti-slavery feelings, and they also increasingly created a body of literature to support the movement. Much of this also went back and forth across the ocean, because Britain, just for one example, had become a nation staunchly opposed to slavery itself, and not merely the slave trade. And that brings us to the Underground Railroad, because advocacy is one thing, and action another. Now, in one sense, it didn't exist. There was no organized body, no structure, and no real leadership except in any individual organization. And in some towns or cities, most notably New York City, there were even multiple organizations who managed to constantly squabble. Now specifically, one of the things they squabbled about was just how aggressively they should oppose slavery in ways that were, mildly, slightly outside of the law. Now this was not necessarily a matter of disrespect for law and order, at least not yet, because in this era we should remember that identity and the legal structure was far more state-based than national in scope. Pennsylvanians did not especially feel all that much need to obey the pro-slavery rules that prevailed in Virginia, unless they visited there. This is not states' rights ideology in the same sense as nullification, but it does emphasize the unique legal concept and identity of each sovereign state. You can also see in this the seeds of why the Fugitive Slave Act would become such a hotbed issue. Now, in practice, abolitionist organizations of any variety usually could not do much to help a slave escape. But the moment a nearby abolitionist knew about the matter, and that slave stood on free soil, well, the slave, or rather former slave, would probably be given a hot meal and a night's rest, and then, if possible, whisked off to another friendly home farther north. This chain usually ended in New York City, Boston, or even on the border with canada where slave hunters rarely if ever ventured now unfortunately this could get expensive in short order slaves rarely had any money to speak of and abolitionists were not necessarily wealthy few families could afford to house a sudden and unexpected guest for all that long and even in philadelphia and new york city abolitionist organizations were often obliged to pass the hat to raise a little money to send fugitives onto a more secure home but they did and they provided all that they could. Yet the most important thing they could offer was always information. Abolitionists knew very well who sympathized openly, who sympathized quietly, and who would maybe not sympathize but wouldn't speak a word to slave drivers. And quite often, the abolitionists knew who was emphatically not to be involved in any way ever. And they could direct fugitive slaves to safety using this. Now the two specific groups considered most trustworthy were, not surprisingly, the Quakers, but also free African Americans. Many slaves in Northern Virginia or Maryland knew and spread the word that they should not trust any white man unless he was a Quaker, identified as those who spoke using an old fashioned thee instead of saying you. And indeed, Quakers would offer shelter where it was needed, and they kept their faith. Many slaves fled from the Upper South with the explicit aid of Quakers. But free African-Americans may have provided even more aid. In part, they were very well placed to assist fugitives because many free men sought employment in New York Harbor or loading wagons and trains. Thus, they were on the spot to locate slaves arriving in free territory, and they could usually be trusted to direct fugitives straight to abolitionists who might help. Now, those abolitionists included African-American agents, for by no means were these circles exclusively white. Shelter, of course, could also include churches with a large freedman membership. These would also protect fugitives wherever they could. Now, in the aggregate, the abolitionist network included thousands of individuals we can identify today as taking active part, and probably thousands more whose names go unrecorded. Their activities were hardly secret, and in fact some openly published articles boasting of their accomplishments the public responded to this all of this vicious display of anarchy with pretty much a big shrug. The plain fact is that almost no northerners were ever prosecuted for aiding a fugitive slave, and few are still actually convicted of it. By the time the rhetoric of slavery was heating up in the 1850s, the northern mind was already tilting more and more decisively in favor of abolitionism. But perhaps the single greatest asset of the Underground Railroad was the Above Ground Railroad. The advent of the Transportation Revolution changed just about everything in some way, and it directly impacted slavery. Rail reached deep into the heart of the South, and any slave who could wheedle his way on board might reach free territory in a day. We've seen ourselves that the Crafts and Henry Box Brown escaped in this manner. But further, it allowed fugitives to much more easily move about once they reached the land of the free. Trainmasters weren't always vigilant even in the Deep South, and much less so in the Upper South. But in Pennsylvania, well, no one was checking for fugitives unless a slave owner personally sent private agents to stalk them. Equally, if a fugitive was under threat, they could be whisked away to another, safer city the next day. And if hunters were watching the train station closely, well, probably the next one down the line wasn't an issue. Just as trains gave power of mobility and freedom of action to the already free, they gave it also to the enslaved. But trains did two other things besides. They spread modernity into a South whose leadership was, at this very moment, trying to resist industrial change with all its might. And trains spread news and hope to slave communities deep in the interior, just as it brought the daily paper and updated market prices to plantation owners. They brought abolitionist literature into the South, no matter how hard the governments tried to ward it off. And as we will see eventually, some of this will end up rather popular even in the Deep South, which suggests that the seemingly united pro-slavery southern voice might not have been nearly so united internally. And perhaps the slave owners knew very well that their position of economic, social, and political power might not rest on as firm a foundation as it appeared. The voice of abolitionism often rested on a weak reed. It was a plaintive, pitiful cry against all the power of domination, wealth, weaponry, and pride. But America, then, was a strongly Christian nation, and if Christianity does teach anything, it is that power does not remain where there is no justice, and the might of the world is fruitless against mercy. The world of slavehood holders, it would appear to become stronger and stronger every year, every decade, And yet in 1852, they were already sowing the seeds of its ultimate destruction. So join us next week for the beginning of the end, and the end of the old political order. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for joining.